This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of December 2nd, 2013, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 109 of Defender Radio. This week we're going to be taking a look at how we communicate as animal advocates and to our governments, including interviews with Mario Canseco of Insight West Research, Professor Carrie Peckwood Freeman from the University of Georgia, and Cheryl Fink, the SEAL expert from the International Fund for Animal Welfare. We all know that communicating effectively is paramount to affecting change. But sometimes it's hard to convince others to listen, even when we feel the message is as clear as day. Trapping is a terrible, cruel practice that results in the torturous deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals in British Columbia each year. If you're listening to this program, you likely agree. But now, we have the proof that we are the majority. Defender Radio News A recent poll conducted by Insights West revealed that only 15% of British Columbia residents supported the idea of killing animals for their fur. This is further evidence and pressure for the Minister of Lands, Forests, and Natural Resources to act on the rising calls for heavier regulations, if not an outright end, to trapping in British Columbia. Joining Defender Radio to discuss the poll and what it may mean is Mario Canseco, a Vice President at Insights West. Mario, what was the intent of this poll? Well, we had a lot of stories over here uh, during the late summer, early fall about hunting. And, and there was an episode that really opened our eyes to the issue as something that would be newsworthy and, and essentially worth sharing with the with the media and, and anybody who was interested. And, and it was Clayton Stoner. He's an NHL player. He came to BC. He's from BC. And he posted some uh, pictures on Facebook of uh, a grizzly bear that he killed. And, and he was particularly proud of that. And um, the backlash was tremendous. And, you know, we had a lot of people who said, you know, this isn't something that should happen. Why are you doing this? This is not who we are. Uh, you know, BC is not supposed to be about killing animals. And what we saw as well was a little bit of a, of a fight on social media and on commentary boards. You know, people who were all about hunting saying, no, 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 this is fine. And it's something that we need to do. So it was tough to get a sense of how people actually felt about it. And I have done some uh, national studies back in my old job with Angus Reid about animal rights, uh, particularly in regards to uh, um, stuff related to the SPCA, you know, stray dogs, stray cats. And I thought this is an interesting opportunity to see how they feel about animals in, in a wide range of issues. Now, the, what was really fascinating about it is to see the level of, of uh, support, quote-unquote, that they gave to this particular issue. You know, it was 10%, which is negligible at best, for trophy hunting and 15% for fur. So um, it was also an, an interesting issue because we, we sort of waited on it. We had the data for, for, for the last couple of months. We thought we should actually publish this in late November, right before Christmas. It'll be an opportunity for those who are considering buying something that has a fur trim to, you know, think twice about it. You only have about 5 or 6% of women who actually enjoy this kind of thing. So um, you should think twice if you're going to give them something like that. It seems to me that while there's clear conversations going on about some of the other issues raised in this poll, when it comes to trophy hunting and trapping for fur, nobody really wants it to be happening. No, it's a, it's a very, very low number of people. And, 
what's interesting to me, and this this is one of the things that I was commenting on when I've been talking about before, you know, you look at, at furring, which is something that you know, not a lot of people do. You know, you, you, you essentially have somebody who's who's interested in that type of situation. Trophy hunting, you would argue that it's it's something that is more mainstream in that way. I mean, you have hunting licenses, you have people who buy guns and rifles and go out there and shoot. And to have it at 10% really shows you that it's a, it's a very minuscule proportion of the VC population who enjoys this. Now, they might, you know, be, be very happy with, with what they're doing and they get together with their friends and they like it, but it doesn't suggest that they're part of the mainstream. If anything, this is one of the lowest numbers that I've ever seen for support for something. What do you think this means for the political leaders and policymakers of British Columbia? Well, this is the interesting thing because, you know, they are faced with a situation right now where their environmental record hasn't been that stellar. Uh, we have all of the discussions about pipelines. There's a, there's been a little bit of a shift after they won the election uh, against everybody's uh, forecast. And what's fascinating to me is that there's an opportunity to do something that is going to be politically positive for them. If they were to come out and say, we're going to ban hunting, we're going to severely reduce the number of licenses, we're just going to do things as a call when it's, you know, quote-unquote humane uh, killing of animals. You know, there's so many things that they could try to do uh, in order to gain some points with the environmental vote, which they have lost, you know, practically more than anything because of their emphasis on energy and, and, and natural resources. But you know, when you have uh, only 10% of BC residents saying that they want to see something happen, you could score some uh, political points, no question. Do these kinds of numbers in a poll, in your experience, mean a government will be willing to listen or change? You know, it's 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 hard to tell whether they would actually do something like this. I think, you know, when you look at the numbers, the public opinion is, is clearly on their side. But what's interesting from the standpoint of the massive nature of the numbers is... Usually you get such a low level of support for something that is going to be new. So, for instance, if you're telling somebody that you're going to be changing the way hydro rates are, are, are calculated or, you know, when you're dealing with something that is already out there or, or, or that is a monumental change, then you tend to get a situation where a lot of people would say, no, I don't think this is the right idea or this is going to affect the hunters or this is going to affect, uh, uh, you know, those who live off the fur trade. Um, when that happens, the numbers are usually a little bit higher. You have about 25-30% who say, well, I may not be morally happy with this, but it's something that needs to be done. And I think we've seen it particularly on some other issues, particularly natural resources. You know, there's this tendency to say, let's save the earth, but if this is going to create jobs for my community, I might actually endorse it. And to have something at 10% really suggests that even if you feel there are some benefits to this, particularly for other people who might be living off the trade, you still find this as something that is unpalatable and you don't want to see it. So the numbers are clearly there. It's, it's difficult to say where they would act on it. And, um, you know, they, they have been known to do things politically for, for a long time. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's ultimately about generating some kind of momentum about it. And um, we tend to be very focused on issues that deal with, with, with wildlife and with animals. Uh, we had two weeks of, uh, you know, wall-to-wall coverage of Rob Ford until we had a situation with a with a dog attack, and that sort of changed the mindset, which was good because we were tired of hearing about Rob Ford. But, you know, there's a tendency from the media to really focus on the stories related to, to animals because that is the kind of a, a province that, that we are, and if they chose to act on it, only opinion would be on their side for sure. To find out more about this poll and how you can show your support, visit us at furbeardefenders.com. Defender Radio News. 
We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Over 3 million animals are killed each year in Canada for their fur. This holiday season, why not give the gift of hope to Canada's wildlife by calling 604-435-1850 and giving a holiday gift today? The Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals works to protect wildlife in Canada. Call 604-435-1850 and please, give generously. Give a voice to the animals who can't speak for themselves by calling 604-435-1850. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, We're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities, one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. This is Defender Radio. Giving Voice to the Voiceless is an academic paper penned by Carrie Peckwood-Freeman, Mark Beckoff, and Sarah Bexell that explores how journalists, using their own existing standards, can better cover animals in the news. I was working as the managing editor of a newspaper when I first met Mark Beckoff, who sent me a copy of this paper. It truly changed the way I did my job. The paper outlines how journalists can utilize non-human animals as sources in news stories, providing realistic and practical steps that can vastly improve the media's ability to cover animal stories. Joining Defender Radio now is the lead author, Carrie Peckwood-Freeman, a professor at Georgia State University, to discuss her background as a communicator and how this paper was developed. Hi Carrie, can you give us a rundown of your academic background in communications? in public relations, and then I had some other careers in human resources, but during those times, I also worked in animal rights, like running a vegetarian society and just doing general activism, so I always felt like I was working on communications, because when you're an activist, that's basically what you're doing, and then I decided to become a professor um, after working uh, for about nine years um, out out of college, and so then I went to... Uh, University of Georgia and got my master's degree there, and my master's thesis was on national news coverage of farmed animals, and then I went on to get a PhD at University of Oregon Journalism and Communication School, and I got that in 2008, and my dissertation was on vegan advocacy of animal the animal rights movement here in the United States. And now I've been a professor for five years with Georgia State University um, in their communication department. It seems you were able to combine your skill set with your passion pretty easily. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I knew I was already an animal rights activist, and I was basically trying to find an academic path where I could examine that. And it's a little challenging because 
um, right now at least, there is no degree in animal rights or animal studies, or there are a few now that have just surfaced around the country, but this is a burgeoning academic discipline. So for those of us traditionally that wanted to study, um, you know, human, non-human animal relations, you have to find a traditional discipline to do that through law or philosophy. And um, I chose communication, even though it wasn't maybe as obvious a route in terms of I didn't really see books published by communication scholars, but it had just been my background. So, and I was interested in kind of the pop cultural and media route to social change. And so I just decided to, you know, study it. And then all my papers and almost all my 15 publications in academia have been related to animal rights and environmental issues. What led you to want to develop the paper, giving voice to the voiceless? Yeah, I well, because I think when I first got into academia and my first large paper was national news coverage of farmed animals, I approached it from an ethical standpoint, not just ethical as in we ought to you know, treat other animals kindly, but what are the media's obligations in terms of being fair to this issue and to these animals? And I you know, noticed during that large study, and that was like in 2000, around the 2000 time period, that there was a bias, you know, that was towards humans, it's anthropocentric bias, that really isn't acknowledged as a bias, because it's really, it's, it's part of dominant culture, and that's pretty normal, that whatever is a dominant cultural bias, we don't see as a bias, it just kind of disappears. So, but I saw it as something that's unfair in terms of the way that the news was reinforcing animal exploitation as being natural and something that didn't really need to be questioned. So I saw that as, you know, a a fault in the media in terms of not fulfilling their duty to be more balanced and objective and fair. And as I started getting more into media ethics as an area of specialty, I realized I should write a paper that wasn't really about a particular animal topic and how the news covered it, but just talking about the news and their ethical obligations in general. I felt like in order to approach this in a way that journalists and the general public might respect more, I asked some scientists to join me as co-authors, because science obviously in this society um, is highly respected, and it's a way to um, add more credibility to your study. So rather than just me as a communication scholar who studies the media saying, hey, I think the media should cover animals in a way that's more fair and bring their voice into uh, stories a little bit more, I was thinking, well, okay, I think some animal behaviorists um, and evolutionary biologists could help me with that portion of it, the idea that animals have cognition and communication skills that we could draw upon to actually, in some ways, let them speak to a certain extent in the stories about them. Or there's times when we humans need to speak on their behalf, and so how do we go about doing that? So when I was at a conference um, in Australia, actually, probably in 2009, um, that was an Animal Studies International Conference, that was the first time I met Dr. Mark Eckhoff, the evolutionary biologist, and I asked, I told him about this paper idea, I thought we should collaborate, and so then that's how it got started. And so then we wrote it all long distance because he's in Colorado, Sarah um, Bexel was in China, and I was here in Atlanta. And 
we eventually had it published in the uh, UK journal Journalism Studies in 2011. What kind of reaction have you received from the academic world and journalists? Well, I actually would say I haven't had much, or I don't know what the reaction is. I know it's been cited several times, um, but I think in a positive sense uh, in other academic papers. And I personally, on my um, my blog that I have where I post the articles, it's been downloaded several hundred times. But to my surprise, I really haven't received much feedback on it. So, because I was either worried that it was, well, you know, you're always worried that when you put out something that asks for, you know, radical change in the way we view other species, that people are going to ridicule you. And I don't feel like I've received any ridicule. And if somebody reads the article about giving voice to the voiceless and incorporating non-human animals as news sources, even though the idea itself may sound a little strange, if you read the article, we provide, uh, me and uh, the two biologists, provide a way that this can be done. And... So I think it actually is fairly rational if people are willing to read it. I mean, my feeling was that a lot of maybe mainstream journalists might read it with some kind of interest if they if they read it at all, because um, it was published in an academic journal. So I don't know how widely that's circulated yet among practitioners. But I want the idea to just suddenly get people talking, even if they want to dismiss it at first. I want people to start talking about it. And I think eventually it will become a classic article, but maybe that's 10 years from now or something like that. Um, and I think that it will end up influencing journalism in the wrong, long run, but how much it's doing so now, I really don't know. Um, but I can tell the listeners at some point about, you know, some of the things that we recommend in the article in terms of what journalists can do. As advocates, what can we do to make this a priority in the realm of traditional media? Well, one thing, if we're going to approach it from the standpoint of us as activists who, let's say, we're not working in journalism um, and we're maybe trying to agenda build, we're trying to get into the media, I would say just make sure that you're paying attention to the news stories in your community and nationally and providing feedback um, you know, through letters to the editor and online and everything um, on different articles and positive and negative feedback. So not just always complaining about things, but also when you see an article that you think was very respectful or included um, a perspective of a non-human animal, then you can compliment the journalist and thank them for the story and that kind of thing. And you can also, in, in your more critical um, comments for journalists, you can provide them with actual guidance rather than just complaining about a story, you know, propose a way they could have improved it. Um, and what we advocate in our, our Voice for the Voiceless article from the Journalism Studies Journal is that the perspectives and interests of other animals, if they relate to an issue, they need to be brought in, just like you would make sure a certain news source was not left out of a story that's pertinent to them. And so, and it could be, even if it's a story about urban sprawl, that affects, you know, wildlife or free animals. And so is there somebody, another human, uh, who can speak on behalf of the wild animals who are going to be displaced because their home is displaced, rather than having it just be a story about human politics or budgets or, you know, something like that, or even just talking about, the environment in a more generic sense, 
without talking about, you know, those who inhabit the environment. We want to help, you know, animate the non-human animal world and show that there, it's filled with individuals that we're sharing the planet with. Um, so the first thing I would say, yeah, is just have people communicate with other journalists to give them ideas about how they could um, incorporate the animal voice and also be a good advocate yourself, like offer for the journalist for you to be a source to speak on behalf of non-human animals in your community in a credible way. Um, I think you could also support um, independent media, too, because I do think that uh, non-commercial media is more apt to approach issues sympathetically or critically or without a bias towards um, the commercial exploitation of animals. Um, because it would just be somewhat natural for commercial-based media who's very beholden to advertising dollars to be a little bit less incentivized, we'll put it that way, to be very critical of the meat industry, the research industry, the fur industry, you know, the circus industry, all these um, ways that we, um, you know, exploit animals. So those are some ways you can do it. And then now I, I like the fact in our Internet age that people can produce their own movies and YouTube videos and blogs now and put those out there. So it's also you can speak for yourself and try to circulate things yourself instead of always having to go through the mainstream media. Even though I do think that if something appears through the mainstream media or through news journalism, it has a certain level of credibility that is useful. So I do think that we need to do both. We need to produce our own activist messages and circulate them, and we need to make sure that these issues are addressed and put on the national agenda through the news media. While working as a journalist, I frequently came across people who were listed as experts in a field. But I could tell they were following an agenda, be it political or financial. How can journalists, who may not have much experience or knowledge of non-human animals, know whether they're being given a biased response? Right, and I think probably that's true no matter what the story is, right? Like, not even beyond animal stories, is we're worried that somebody has a limited expertise or everyone's expertise still has an ideology behind it. And so, I mean, one of the only ways to do that might be to, that this is more time-consuming, is to interview multiple experts, right, to get a variety. I always feel like we get closer to the truth the more um, viewpoints we bring in, you know, because then you'll see maybe some, um, some certain ideas will be reinforced by others. Um, and so if you bring in a spectrum of different biologists, that may help. Um, my one of my colleagues and I, Dr. Deborah Merskin, we're trying to put together, kind of based on this article that we're talking about, we're trying to put together uh, an online resource that's like a media style guide for covering animals. And one of the things we want to put on there are some common um, misnomers or common errors that are made. And so we wanted to create a list of specialists like Dr. Mark Beckoff and other people, or Dr. Lori Marino when it comes to cetaceans, that we think have a good grasp on um, certain species and um, their behaviors and their interests, and, and don't have a vested interest in exploiting these animals. So that will be something that we'll probably have up in 2014, and you know that may help, but it's not going to necessarily have every expert from all over around the world. So, but I. 
I really do think that it is important to see um, whether the person has a vested interest in animal exploitation. Like if you're talking to a veterinarian, but they tend to work on farmed animals, and so they get tend to get paid by the agribusiness industry, I don't think they're the best representative of what a cow's needs are or what a chicken's needs are or a turkey's needs are, even though they will know about those species biologically, from an ideological standpoint, they're really their main customer is the humans who own those animals. So, you know, they're really not an unbiased, um, I wouldn't say an advocate for the non-human animals. So those kinds of things I'd like journalists to take into consideration, just like they would with any anytime they're concerned about a bias that someone could have. I mean, we have to worry about that with any scientist these days, that just because you're a scientist doesn't mean that you are not aligned with a certain perspective or a certain, um, you're not getting paid by a certain organization to, you know, put forth a certain viewpoint. How do we get the discussion about how we view animals started, not just in the media, but around the world? And how important is the communication aspect of that? I'm a teacher as well, so I introduce these concepts you know, into my classes, and I have a special class that I sometimes teach on communicating environmental issues. But even you know, in the elementary schools and in the high schools and in all kinds of college classes, what I would like to see is kind of an environmental and animal protection literacy, you know, where, where nobody graduates from high school or college without a better understanding of all the other species on the planet and the way that the human species in particular is um, causing problems for all these other animals. And so because I actually feel like, ironically, a lot of people are graduating from college and they really have never questioned, you know, the fact that they never really have thought of themselves as an animal or what that means or thought that much about how much other species matter. And that that bothers me, you know, that someone could graduate with a degree and you have all this knowledge about things, but in terms of how you could apply it or how you value other animals, it's something um, that really just isn't discussed. Like, I don't think you should graduate college and not have an understanding or at least have spent time questioning the concept of animal rights. You know, do animals have rights or, do, you know, does a tree have rights? So these kinds of um, questions are things we all need to talk about more. And then, like you said, you'll create a generation that is more sensitive to these issues and to the way we interact with other animals. Because I think at, at the bottom line is that we just need to respect other animals more. Because if you respect them, then you would naturally want to bring their perspective or their interests into a story. But if you approach every story from an anthropocentric standpoint, you're going to look at a coyote issue and just say, you know, hey, are they causing problems for people? You know, and but that's not the whole way to look, you know, at, at it. That's a limited way to look at it. And with journalism, we're obligated to look at it from um, many different perspectives. And so that includes the perspective of, in this case, the coyote who's trying to live his or her life. Um, and that also reminds me, like I just said, or her, one of the things that everyone can do is try to ensure that the language we use when describing other animals is precise and respectful. And I think trying to avoid using the term it to describe animals is useful. But in our vernacular, almost everybody, even I hear lots of animal protection advocates say it when describing 
other animals because it's just so common. Because, of course, a lot of times when we don't know someone's gender um, and for a non-human animal, we'll just say it. But we don't do that disservice to humans who we don't know their gender or we're talking abstractly about humans, we don't say it. So you have to kind of compensate with the clunky his or her, it's not perfect, or just say they, use a plural uh, pronoun. Um, or I like to just say, too, to try to avoid referring to animals as like a circus elephant, a lab rat, a beef cow, or a dairy cow, and instead just refer to them by their species name or say they're a cow who's used for dairy or a rat who is in a lab or something or is being experimented on in a lab. Um, and I, I use the term farmed animal instead of saying um, farm animal because I want to try to put a verb in there to kind of show that these labels we put on other species, it doesn't define them um, completely. It's how we've chosen to define them. And so I think if you put a, if you take farm and turn it into a verb like farm, then it reminds us that we are farming them. It's not necessarily who they are. Um, and we are using them for milk, but that's not the extent of who they are. So there's a lot of power in the language that we use. And a lot of our language is so disrespectful and it, and it reflects an industry perspective. And so I try to also point out to journalists that it's a bias if we constantly refer to other animals using the same terms that the industry would refer to them, like referring to you know these birds as poultry or something like that, instead of just saying that they're a turkey or they're a duck or they're a chicken. So, But it, it's difficult with language because a lot of times we don't really have a respectful way to talk about other animals, especially when the term animal itself is often considered derogatory. APLA has made a link to Carrie's paper, Giving Voice to the Voiceless, available on this week's Defender radio blog at furbearerdefenders.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our furbearing friends. This is Defender Radio.
Last week, the World Trade Organization ruled in favor of a European Union ban on the importation of seal products. It was received as a victory to Canadian animal advocates, though our government immediately announced its intent to appeal. Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare is one of Canada's leading experts on the seal hunt and has spent over 10 years documenting the brutal violence that is ubiquitous with it. Cheryl joins Defender Radio now to discuss the past, present, and future of the seal hunt in Canada. Hi Cheryl, why don't we start out with a bit of history of the seal hunt in Canada? But I guess we can go back to the 60s, late 60s, when... You know, our founder, Brian Davies, first found out what was going on at the seal hunt. Um, he'd seen it through a, a film, I guess, that was on Radio Canada, and went to the ice himself to see firsthand what was going on. He was with the New Brunswick SPCA at the time, saw the cruelty that was going on, was horrified, and committed to devoting the rest of his life to bringing an end to the commercial slaughter of seals in Canada. That's where it all started. Um, he started the, up the International Fund for Animal Welfare in Canada, um, dedicated, you know, dedicated to that purpose. And I mean, for the, we'll make the long story sort of short. Forty years later, we're still working on it. In 1983, we were successful in banning the export, the import of white-coated harp seals and blue-backed hooded seals. So this is nursing seal pups. Those were banned in Europe in the 1980s, and Canada subsequently stopped hunting those. But then the hunt came back in Canada in the mid to late 1990s. Brian Tobin, fisheries minister announced big subsidies for the seal hunt. This was right after COD had collapsed on the East Coast. He came out and said, seals are responsible for all of this. We're going to implement subsidies. We need to kill more seals. And that's what brought the hunt back to where it's been in the past few decades. So a lot of subsidies, increasing the quotas as high as 400,000 seals to be killed every year. Um, and the hunt got quite big up around 2006. You know, there was over 300,000 seals being killed. Um, pelts were going for $102 each. That was kind of the highlight, the high point of the hunt in recent years. Now, also around that time, IFA and other groups started bringing European politicians out to the ice to show them what was going on with this renewed seal hunt, saying, look, you know, the world thought this was over in the 80s when we stopped killing white coats, but it's still going on, it's back. Um, those politicians were horrified, went back to Europe and started introducing trade bans in their own countries. So in the mid-2000s, we saw first... Uh, Belgium introduced a trade ban on seal products, and then Netherlands followed. And it was after those two countries had their bans in place that the European Union said, look, we can't have some countries importing seal products and not other countries. We need to look at coordinating this legislation. And that's when the European Union ban came into place in 2009. So since 2009, I guess it was implemented in 2010, European Union has had a ban on the import and sale of seal products, not just from Canada, but from any commercial hunt. Um, with an exception for seal skins hunted by Inuit and Aboriginal people. for There's an exception for seal products brought in for personal use by travelers, touristy type things. And there was an exception for seal products that were the direct result of what they call marine resource management activities. So I guess that's the background to where we were at. So 2009, the European Union banned the import and sale of seal products. And immediately we saw the seal hunt start to decline in Canada. In fact, even before the ban came into place, the number of seals killed dropped dramatically from, uh, you know, 200, over 200,000 prior to the ban, dropping down to 40,000 in 2011. So a huge drop in the number of seals killed, huge drop in the value of a pelt price. It went from $102 down to $20 per skin. 
Um, and the number of people taking part also dropped dramatically, going from, you know, 5,000, 4,000 sealers in the mid-2000s down to 400, 500 sealers is what we've been seeing in recent years. So the European ban has had a, definitely a large impact on the hunt here in Canada, and it's had a dramatic, it's, it's been incredibly successful in reducing the number of seals killed here in Canada. When the general public hears about the seal hunt, we're told that it's an aboriginal issue and it's about protecting traditional means of sustenance and economics. I think one of the, the big myths that is coming from all of this is that we're not typically talking about an Arctic seal hunt or an Inuit seal hunt. The campaign that we're focused on is the one on the Atlantic seal hunt. So sealers mostly in Newfoundland, a few in Nova Scotia, you know, but mostly primarily the Newfoundland seal hunt, which is the hunt that has the quota for 400,000 animals. And, you know, this is a hunt for, for fur. The very little meat is used. We see it thrown back overboard on the ice. Um, and the fur is used to make coats and mitts and boots and, and exported to, traditionally, we went to markets such as, as Russia. Um, today it's not really going anywhere at all. Um, but this idea that, you know, that there is an Inuit seal hunt, it's for a different species of seal, it takes place in a different area, that's not what the campaigns by NGOs are focused on. I think there's sort of a, an appreciation that in Arctic communities, seal is a source of food, they do eat the animal, and they, you know, they wanted to find markets for the byproducts of that sort of subsistence hunting activity, which is why the European Union allowed an exemption for Inuit hunted seal skins. Compare that to the East Coast seal hunt, where you know they're not eating the meat from all of those animals. Most of it's getting tossed overboard. Um, very, very little of it is actually consumed. So it's a very wasteful hunt, large-scale commercial hunt for luxury products that aren't, aren't needed. We always try to distinguish between the two types of hunts, um, and the European Union distinguished between the two types of hunts. It's the government of Canada and the sealing industry that's trying to meld them together to sort of portray the entire industry as being this you know, Inuit subsistence seal hunt, which is absolutely not, not true. I don't think any Inuit skins ever went to the European Union, probably never will. I mean, those skins don't get exported. There's, there's no link at all. But of course, it's to their advantage internationally to make it look like these bans are hurting Inuit people or hurting Inuit subsistence activities. Are we being intentionally misled on this? Absolutely. And this is a deliberate approach that's being used by the fur industry and by the government to sort of, as you say, portray all fur and all hunting activities as traditional activities when they're not. These are commercial, profit-making, large-scale enterprises. But of course, you know, they like to paint this romanticized notion of the trapper going out in the woods or the sealer going out with his spear and his kayak, um, when really that is a very, very small part of the actual seal hunting that goes on today. Very, very small. And we actually, we've actually gotten a document through Access to Information um, about a decade ago that acknowledges that they, the quote is, they encourage the government to play the Inuit card, quote unquote, and open the door for the East Coast sealers using, basically using this idea of Inuit sealing. So it's a, it's a deliberate tactic. It's completely dishonest. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's moderately successful, I would say. Why are we being told this is so economically important? Exactly, exactly. In the case of the seal hunt, as I said, we saw the value of this hunt drop dramatically in the past few decades. It's now around the $1 to $2 million mark in the, the landed value. Um, 
the there's only one seal processor left in New Zealand. It required government loans of $3.4 million in each of the past two years in order for them to go ahead and you know be able to offer money for any of the prices for the pelts. The, the industry still receives funding from the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. There's still funding coming from the federal government, primarily now in the form of defending this industry in front of the WTO, which is estimated to cost $10 million. Who knows how much more it'll cost now with the appeal. But the amount of money being put into trying to keep the seal hunt alive and trying to defend it around the world is far, far greater than the amount that it's bringing into any community or any seal or even the processing company. It's it's an economic disaster, really, as to why any government would, especially a government that claims to be fiscally responsible, why they would continue to keep funding such an industry, which if it was left to stand on its own two legs, it would probably disappear very, very quickly. Aren't there any economic alternatives for the people who are involved in this industry? And that's the thing. We're at a point now where there are so few individuals that are working at this. It's maybe a few hundred, okay? The the government will throw out numbers like 15,000 or 5,000. They're looking at the number of licenses, but the number of actual active sealers is far, far less than this. It only costs $5 to get your sealing license, so a lot of people renew it for their $5 just in case they want to go someday, but far, far few people actually go out and take part in the hunt than have licenses. So we're talking about a few hundred people at most, and we're talking about an activity that takes place for maybe two, three weeks of the year. This isn't a full-time job, so in that sense, it's maybe a little different from other industries in that this isn't a full-time job for anybody. They all go to different fisheries as soon as season's over, um, primarily snow crab, which is much more lucrative than seal hunting. So, you know, we're looking at two, three weeks of the year, supplementary income. It's not their main source of income. Is it, you know, it's still something. I'm not going to argue that a few thousand dollars is still more than not having a few thousand dollars for a season. But I think the the numbers of individuals affected is so small now that there would be an opportunity for something like, for example, a government license buyout, which is one of the things that groups have been advocating for, for the government to just you know, buy the licenses back and say, we're going to end the seal hunt. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the cost to taxpayers. Here's you know a buyout depending on how many how many years you've gone sealing recently and what your income would have been from that activity, and you could you could buy out those licenses for far far less than what we're currently paying to try to keep the seal hunt alive, and I think this continuing to put money into the seal hunt it really is a losing battle. We are seeing country after country continue to implement trade bans now that the WTO panel has kind of given their seal of approval to it, so to speak, saying it is legitimate for countries to ban the import of seal products based on animal welfare concerns. That's basically what yesterday's report said. It's okay for countries to do this. So I suspect we're going to see a lot more countries um, going ahead with trade bans. After the European Union banned seal products, Russia banned the import of seal products. That was 95% of our export market at the time. Taiwan has also uh, implemented a ban on seal products. So this is a, I think this is a growing trend. It's something that we're going to see continuing. Uh, and even, even without the bans, people just don't seem to want seal products. If the government is subsidizing this industry, and there's relatively speaking not a lot of people involved, why are they pushing so hard to protect it? That is the, that's the million dollar question right now, literally. We used to say, you know, not so long ago, we'd say, well, it's, you know, politicians are saying this because they're trying to get votes in Atlantic Canada. But when we look at the situation now with the Conservative government, it doesn't matter how much they support the seal hunt. I can't see them getting too many votes in Atlantic Canada anytime soon, no matter what happens with the seal hunt. So why are they continuing to support it? I think there's probably some, some pride involved. 
There's a lot of politicians that have stood up many times saying, we're going to support the seal hunt. This is important. They've got to know deep down that it's not. I mean, sure, some of them are just repeating the talking points, but some of them have got to be saying, you know, some of them have got to be having some personal issues with this. Like, They know what they're saying isn't true. They know this is not a viable economic industry. And as a government that claims to be fiscally responsible, they're continuing to throw money at a, a losing economic proposition. They don't understand it. So I think I think a lot of it's coming down to pride right now. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, again, it's all fine for Canada to say, well, the, here's another panel ruling. The Europeans are all hypocritical and misinformed. And, but it's country after country and panel and decision after decision kind of looking at Canada's seal hunt and saying, yeah, there's some problems here. We've got animal welfare problems. Citizens are concerned. They don't want the products, and they have the right to reject these products based on animal welfare concerns. Will the EU ban bring an end to the seal hunt, or should people still be getting involved in advocacy work? I think, yes, as you say, I think the industry is going to die, but definitely we need to keep public public uh, opposition high in Canada, keep writing to our MPs. I don't know. We can keep writing to the Prime Minister. I'm not sure how much attention he pays, but definitely our local members of Parliament should be paying attention to this, and particularly come election time, we need to remind them that the seal hunt is something that Canadians care about. It's something that we, we don't want to see continue. It's something we don't want to see our tax dollars wasted on. And that I think as a government, we we can offer better for you know fishermen in remote communities. We can do better than trying to hold up the sealing industry as something that's going to be a viable future. It's not going to be a viable future. We're not kidding anyone. You know, we're just throwing money down a hole. So let's get away from this industry altogether and try to find something better. That was Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, joining Defender Radio to talk about the seal hunt in Canada. To learn more about Cheryl, visit www.ifaw.org. That's all we've got time for this week, folks. On behalf of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals and our title sponsor, Gates Wildlife Control, I'd like to thank you for joining us. To learn more about any of today's guests, please visit our blog at furbearerdefenders.com. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.